right, we're back at the Zootown Brew, continuing with our review of uh, Just Enough, Lessons in Living Green from Traditional Japan by Asby Brown. Um, we each have tea. All right, Rory, what's your tea? Green, Sancho. Okay, Abe? Black tea with lemongrass. I've got the Montana Gold, which is that kind of orange spice tea, but without the caffeine. It's just an herb tea. We've also had, we've also each had a muffin. I had chocolate. Lemon poppy seed for me. I had blueberry because you know it's the closest one that they had to huckleberry. They don't have huckleberry muffins. It's like that's just wrong. You know, it, it, suddenly the whole, you know, the whole coffee shop's kind of like you know. Got to got a downvote there, you know, because of the. I mean, this I, I don't know. I like this coffee shop the best now. It used to be the the break. In your Missoula, you're gonna go to the break. That's the coffee shop to go to. But here at Zootown, the internet's better and the chairs are comfier. So it's like you just uh, I don't know, groove on being here a big chunk of the day more. So we we took on this chunk of the book, learning from field and forest. So this is the next chunk, and. It's like the book took a hard left turn. Right, definitely did. We've broken out of the narrative in the last few sections. I said hard left turn, and you said right. <laughs> right, Paul. Correct. Oh, correct. Okay. Not like Yeah, it's it's like uh, it, it went from like talking about what was to like being a kind of like lectury preachery thing, like uh, do what I tell you to do kind of thing. I mean. And the word should is the dominant word in in this section. Uh, the section is broken down into about probably about 30 different axioms, and most of them are written in the form of commands. And you could just read the headings as commands. I and and take it at that. I mean. They're all verbs like just obey, yes, <laughs> understand, strive, don't underestimate, practice, let gravity do the work, base water system, understand, verb, 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 verb. So I, I, when I was reading through it, I, some of it was like, okay, I already know that one. Right. And some of it was like, oh, dude, I've got some things to tell you. And and uh, um, so some and, and then, but he would say it in such a way that it's like this this is the ultimate truth, and and uh, it's like every time I hear somebody doing that, it, it always kind of bugs me, you know. I just kind of want to tune them out. Same here. This, me too. I'll third that. This yeah. book is like a book that you would get a nonfiction, or this part of the book is like a nonfiction book about permaculture that you would get at the bookstore, but not as in-depth and a lot more righteous. Yeah, but, you know, I feel like a lot of, I mean, maybe the thing is, is the guy's trying to, you know, say, okay, now let's take a break from all the stuff I told you, and now let me uh, tell you why I'm writing the book. I mean, clearly the guy's got some passions about these things, and, and granted, he's covering a lot of things like, hey, things, things suck. And so here's some ways to make it suck less. But rather than like, here's some ways to make it suck less, he's like, here's what you're going to do now. (laughs) 
and we should be doing this, and we should all, you know, stop being so fucking comfortable. You know, the head, the title of this section is called "Learning from Field and Forest," which the word "learning" I take to mean in the sense of Southern people saying, "I'm gonna learn you good, boy." <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of got the feeling that he wants us to just simply obey. So I, I don't know. I kind of felt like I was really grooving on this guy's writing style up to this point. Like, like it just seemed delicious the way he chose to present it. I, other books would have been, been like, this is what they did, the end. Sometimes they did it this way, the end. But in the, I love how he kind of had that story of like, we're now walking into the village and this is what we see. And and so I thought I thought you know I I I haven't encountered um, a book like this in this format before and it works it really works so I'm kind of thinking this guy's a great writer until I get to this section and then I think no this is kind of like I don't know it's it's not that of a great writer yeah, yeah you might as well like read a book like Gaia's Garden in place oh. of this well Gaia's Garden doesn't talk about building stuff. And and I think Gaia's Garden is entirely based upon what you do now. Whereas I kind of felt like what I was getting from the book before this point was that a lot of stuff about how things were done in the past, which it just turns out to be like, oh, that is cool. And I'm getting all kinds of ideas of how I can do stuff kind of like that here and now. And my and rather than don't be comfortable, it's like, and my life would be more comfortable. So it's kind of like I could take all of my comfy things from today and mix it in with some of the comfy things from in here, and my life would be even better. Now it's like, no, no. Now I'm going to tell you how you're going to interpret these things and what you are now going to do. Yeah, this section sort of came out of nowhere for me. I didn't. I mean, I was unexpected. It was unexpected. There's no pictures. There's no more little writing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It took a it really change. I don't know. That's true. I was really enjoying the pictures. Right. And you're now right. it's like serious. Yeah. You, you must do all these things. You've had your dessert. Yeah. Now it's time for you to eat your vegetables. But it is important to know, to mention that we will go back to the pictures. Right. Like, oh yeah. The middle insert. This is yeah. This is some sort of little uh, tangent or something. This is our spanking for not obeying or, uh, I don't know, this is the price we're paying for having read the, for, for all the candy we've enjoyed so far, perhaps? So, if I'm, since we're kind of tearing this section apart right away, I want to say that the main thing that I noticed that I wound up putting stars next to all the, all different parts of it, is that it kind of glosses over a certain issue that isn't addressed in any one of these axioms directly, but it is cropping up again and again and again and again, and it's kind of like hiding out in the background. And it's close to directly addressing it. He's talking about literacy 
and says, in our era of unparalleled information gathering and dissemination, uh, we're the most highly literate in history, so why doesn't change happen more quickly? And then he says, one answer is vested interests who are able to exert undue influence on the flow of information in order to maintain advantageous political and market conditions. This is a big fucking deal that basically, you know, we got to kill the machine before the machine kills us. And it's in the background of a lot of these little things talking about examples of people who maintain advantageous political and marketable conditions by exerting their undue influence through corporate structures, political structures, all kinds of throwing their weight around with money. And they know that if people enact many of these axioms, if they start building things for themselves, or growing their own food or providing their own transportation, that's money out of their, coming directly out of their corporate profits. And it's all over this section. I have stars on nearly every page of... So now is this guy, you think he's bashing the um, politicians and, well, bad guys. I mean, basically, okay, we're, we're, no, these are bad not. guys. He's not he's bashing, bashing bad it. guys from today or bad guys from a couple hundred years ago. He's not bashing it. What he's doing is kind of placing it in the background and minimizing it when it needs to be brought directly to the fore as, like, the most critical moral issue of our times, you know. Well, we're, even if we do all these things... So we didn't have bad guys in the past. No, we did, but even if we do all these things that this guy recommends, there's still going to be huge international corporations out there cutting down forests to sell you products that you don't need that make you sick, even if we enact all of these things. See, now, I, I think that the thing is, this is where I really love permaculture, is, is, is the idea of... Uh, so, for example, I had a guy call me up, a friend, an old friend called me up, and he, he's got fracking going on in his neighborhood, and he's really upset about it. And, um, and it's like... And plus, on top of that, he suddenly started getting really, really sick, and he thinks that there's a, a relationship between his illness and the fracking that's going on. And I, and so I, I said, okay, no, the fracking, that's to get natural gas out of the ground, right? And he says, he says, okay, yeah. And I said, okay, so now you've got yourself a little house there. What, what do you heat it with? Natural gas. Okay, so you're feeding the monster there, dude. You're, you're, it's not that you're part of the problem. You are the problem. You, it's, it's you're blaming these other guys. These, you know, they're but they're just fucking selling you the shit that you want. And and so basically, all you got to do, and you know, go look at my article about the 87 percent. How you can cut 80 percent, 87 percent off of your electric heat bill. Switch to electric, or maybe put in a rocket mass heater. Do anything and get that get that gas out of your house now. But oh wait, let me. Make make a point that even if, say, he stopped using that, 
it's not going to stop the fracking happening next door. Say if oh, the it whole totally world. fucking is. Biden. Now that's where I'm going with this. Now if so he, if, if he goes out and then he convinces all of his neighbors, they're all pissed off. They're all fucking pissed. And it's like, well, you know what? I wonder if you're talking about like there's like all these people are probably getting gas heat. And you go and you get everybody in town. This is in Boulder, Colorado. You go and get everybody in town to stop using gas. And it's like, my understanding is natural gas does not transport well. And the reason, you know, so what they've got to do is if they've got a lot of demand for gas in Boulder, then they're going to find a way to get it in Boulder. And then they're going to start using the fracking. And it's kind of like, but hey, here's the thing. If everybody stops using it, then suddenly there's not enough business for them to even screw with it. And then they stop. You know, it's and so I kind of feel like permaculture. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a, a realistic assessment that we export enormous quantities of all kinds of oil and right natural oh. gas and all kinds. Uh, of not natural gas. No, I saw an article on it today that it was like some petition someone had on Facebook going around saying stop the natural gas produced by fracking from being exported to China. And it seems like in many cases, even if the entire country of the United States swore off uh, natural gas produced by, say, fracking, those companies don't give a damn. They'll sell it to any other country. They'll sell it to anybody that wants it, regardless of what's going on at home, you know? So uh, you see it in time and time again in all these documentaries about fracking. It says there's such structural injustice going on that you can't, even if you get the whole town mobilized, you're dealing with organizations that are above governments. They're international. So you can't hardly, you can't do anything. It's yes, really, you I'm can. Not, you can. You can. You can. We're doing all, this all you book can do that is we're not reading. buy their shit. And that's it, basically. You have to vote with your dog. Stop feeding the fucking monster. Yep. That's all it is. And this book, basically, I mean, how much natural gas do the people in the Edo period use? Zero. 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 And, and like, are they, are they out there weeping in the streets because they don't have any natural gas? And it's like, no, they're well, getting we're, we're both in agreement that the only thing you can do is vote with your dollar and not use products that harm you, the land around you, or other people. Well, and I do think that this section, you while poorly it. written, does touch into these issues a little bit, and they're very important. However, I think that, you know, if I can go, like, wherever, the, wherever they're going to take the natural gas and they're going to take it over to China or something, let's say, or wherever they're exporting it to. Now, what if I can reach out through the mighty Internet and tell these people about Wafati, Rocket Mass Heater, and 87% off of my electric heat bill. Now, do those people still want that natural gas? And perhaps not, no. They see your things and they say, you know, that works really well. I like this approach way better than the approach. Because, like, my friend already has spent enormous tracks of his life and taken a huge chunk out of his personal heart and soul to, like, be angry at the bad guys. And what has it done? Pretty much nothing. Everything, they're still fracking. And it doesn't look like it's going to change. And so... However, my strategy, I mean, you know, if, if, if half the people in Boulder say we don't want it, and, and then it even gets to 80% of the population in Boulder says, you know, turns off their natural gas, 
I mean, I think I think there's going to start to be some serious change. But it's like there was a city in I think New York that had a lot of natural gas under it. An oil company moved in. The entire city, like 95% of the people testified in their local court and they passed a local ordinance that it was illegal to frack in their county. Right. The company just said, well, screw you guys. You know, we're going to go to your state and make it legal to frack anywhere they we want. Right. And they went and did it, you know. Which we so totally expect right, them to do. They're right being back. So you got to do more than just put these issues in the background of your bullet points about conserving resources. This, In order to get through this, it needs to be full full frontal assault with what you're doing, with what, how we're spending our dollars, a lot of different things combined, because it's like going up against the Goliath, you know. I don't mean you, I mean, it's, well, it's, you're, it's, you're a big, you're a big deal, and you have a very powerful voice, and you can really sway people, and that, if you're saying it loud and clear, front and center, that's really powerful. And this book isn't doing that in this section. That's what I'm trying to say is that he's glossing over it and relegating the issue to like minor, minor points in all these bullet points where it should be really a, as big a bullet point as any of these. I, I think okay so so we're not, we're I don't know what we're right there's about, there's all kinds of bad guys doing bad things they've been around forever um, you know uh, I I like so 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 Jeff Lawton a Muslim was pointing out that uh, Jesus's detractors killed him. And, and so it's like, oh, so there were detractors there that were so, you know, intense, they actually killed people, you know, and, and so it's, it's like, this is nothing new. We've had bad guys. There's always going to be bad guys. And, and the thing is, is like, well, how do we live a life that's going to make us so that we're not feeding the monster? So it's, it's like, it's, and it's hard. It's not easy uh, to, to find a way, uh, find a path out. But there are some things that are easier than others. And the fracking one is one where it is easy. It seems hard at first because it's like, you know, when it gets cold, it's like fucking cold. And it is not comfortable. And yet, it's like, well, what are the other solutions? And so then that's where, I mean, this is an enormous area. And that's why I've put so much time into heat, into heating your home. I mean, a rocket mass heater. If you've got a rocket mass heater, you heat your home with a handful of twigs a day. And then what the what goes outside is dominantly just steam and CO2. I, I think a candle pollutes more than a rocket mass heater. So there's that as a potential solution. Uh, total cost to build, buying everything brand new, typically around $200. Although there are people that have scrounged around for stuff and they've managed to get it for under 20 bucks. Takes a weekend to build. That is a viable option. Some people are like, I just don't have the DIY skills to be able to build something like that. No problem. Look at the 87% article. Look at how you can you cut your uh, uh, heat bill by 87% just by heating the people instead of heating the entire damn house. So now you've made an enormous dent. The Wolfon 
body. Doesn't require any heat whatsoever. It's just simply a design, a house design. These energy problems, I mean, most of the environmental disasters that we're looking at come from energy stuff. I mean, right now, ooh, hydropower is so clean. No, it's not. The silt is building up behind the dams. It's destroying the not just the salmon habitat. I mean, they built all these these fisheries, these, these salmon fisheries, in order to be able to repopulate the salmon. But that's just one species. Like, you totally fucked that one species, and now you're thinking that, oh, because no one's making a stink about the other species, then it's okay? No. There's a lot of other species that are getting totally destroyed by the, by the hydro dam. And, and, and they're, uh, they're, the silt building up behind them now, it's like what the solutions for getting the silt out are not looking pretty. And so suddenly these dams are going to just stop functioning. The profit motive, I think, is what drives a lot of this stuff. They, these industries want you to waste energy so they can sell you more energy. And I think that if a person can capture the profit motive, say in a way you have in the way that you talked about making big bucks from permaculture, or in this book it talks about the book uh, Cradle to Cradle right. and how new products are being and materials are being created that can be upcycled so that you can continually use them. There's profit in that. There's profit in a lot of things that are beneficial and regenerative to the environment. And I think that the the profit motive for all this waste and abuse of the planet is what's kind of driven us to this point is that it's people looking to make a buck. And it's an easy, quick reaction to say we need to, you know, we need to destroy the profit motive. We need to excise profit out of existence from the planet. It's a very easy thing to, for a person to go to, but I think what's far more realistic is to replace the bad sort of profit with a good sort of profit. I, I think it's, I think that rather than going after, because I, I, I think there's people that have done massive, awesome things, very good things, and they made a lot of profit. And I kind of feel like, yay team, go man, go. I think that the thing that you know we need to focus on is bad guys doing bad things. And and it's like, and granted, there are a lot of people that have a lot of energy in that space, and I see them like going after the one percent. It's like, no, 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 don't go after the one percent. Go after bad guys doing bad things. And then some people say it's oh, like like Walmart. No, no, it, you know, when they, it's it's like when you when you're looking at Walmart, it's uh, so many people are just like oh. It's because they're not doing the thing with the health insurance. And it's like Walmart, in that case, they're they're behaving within the law, you know. And it's like, and then there's other people that are doing it just as bad, if not worse, than Walmart. It's like, uh, so anyway, it gets in this massive political, complicated thing. And and there are people uh, that are that are out there being appropriately angry about a lot of the stuff. Although I think that they're chasing way too many red herrings. And so it'd be great to get some some good clarity. Go after bad guys that have done bad things. And um, um, and a lot of times we're dressing up our bad guys as good guys. And and this is this is true. What you just read off in there a moment ago that that there are people that are have, that have control that have inappropriate control over political stuff, and and they're doing bad things. They are they're getting um, an unfair advantage in the market because of uh, they've passed some bullshit law, and they basically bought the law. 
And so, yes, these are all bad things. But, all right, let's set all that shit aside. I, I think that the key is, is like, how do we get to the point that we make for a better world through our own actions? We vote with our fork, we vote with our dollar, and we vote with our actions, and we don't feed the monster. We stop feeding. I mean, I think that's a lot of what I feel. Is like, how can I have a, a better life and um, something where I can feel more ethically comfortable, something where I feel like I'm not feeding the monster as much. Like, I've have I cut my feeding of the monster in half? Have I cut it by a factor of 10? And then once I've cut it by a factor of 10, can I cut it by a factor of 10 again? So it's like the game isn't so much about all or nothing. It's about getting better. You know, and, and it's like, in fact, look, at, there are people out there that are living a life that is 10 times better by my own standards, and each person has their own set of standards, and then being aware of that, and then saying to themselves, how can I get there? And I think that this book that we're reading is an excellent teacher in that space. Here are some things, here are some things that are better. I mean, clearly, because one of the things we talked about is stop having a, 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 a society where you throw things away and I'm thinking no have a society where you throw things away but it's like there's no pollution to it you throw away an apple core no big deal who cares bugs will find it and need it but you throw away a, a transistor radio yeah that's not cool um, all of these all of these bullet points through this section are all each one is a way to not feed the monster and that's great I want to know. I want to hear what Rory thinks about all this. I mean, you can. Paul, you're talking about cutting down the using the use of oil and natural gas, but through like use of heat. But it's so it's in so many other places in our lives that I think you'd have to do much, much more than what you're saying. And I think that I think you agree with that. But it's like just by cutting it out of your heating bill doesn't doesn't mean that it's going to disappear from that 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 fracking is going to disappear i mean that's going back on a much so if i can you know basically i i would think that 60 to 70 percent of the people in boulder that currently are hooked up to the natural gas system would end their use of natural gas if they thought that the fracking would stop and that they would switch over to electric or maybe something else and then it's like, it's, I think it's quite probable that, that the fracking that's going on in Boulder, I mean, you think about it, in order, like, if they're going to start pumping the natural gas from there and they're going to transport it somewhere, that's not a really good place for transporting it to anywhere. They're out in the middle of Colorado. It's a long, long ways to someplace else. Now, they could, they could put it on trains and fill the trains with the gas, and then, but it's like the transporting just starts to become a big hassle. It'll become too expensive. I mean, they've they got to do it, though. I mean, they yeah. dig up a whole half of a state and put it on a train and then put it on a boat and send it all around the world. It's, it's a natural gas pipeline right by our house. Yeah, it's like... I mean, that's coming... In a, globalized, in a globalized world, local resistance isn't as effective. So there needs to I be mean, I don't global to bring it back to that, one, to that one point. This, I think this section does have 
great ideas for, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, this is all great. I think local resistance is awesome. Everybody in Boulder should switch off natural gas. Everybody here in Missoula, Montana should do it as well. Right. There you go. And that's all, if we all do that all around the world, if we all do our local thing everywhere where we are, that's the whole planet. You want Montana to... the great thing about the local movement is that everywhere is local. If you want Monsanto to go away, stop giving them money. If you want the fracking stuff to stop, stop giving them money. But wouldn't you say, think that that would mean go so far as to mean that you can't use, I mean, you can't use a computer then. You can't use anything that has plastic in it. I mean, you can't use your car and I can't use my bike, you know? It's... It's it's everywhere. See, now I we, I can totally yeah. have my car and I can have my laptop and and there's no if fracking anywhere. There's no there's no if it weren't if it weren't for natural gas for oil. I mean I mean like no no because plastics for example can be done without oil. I, I don't I don't know how how much plastic without oil is around us. I mean I don't know. They could do it from plant material. It might be sure. I totally believe that, but I'm I'm not convinced that that's always the way that it's done. The no, no, it's, it's, it's you're right. right. You're right. So, but but you know, can we not? say that we will pay um, 10% more to have something that's made out of a non-oil-based thing. Sure. Now, granted, I'm, I'm more concerned like with the laptop or with the car. There's a lot of other toxic metals and other toxic things that go into those to make them so that they function. But, I mean, and again, it comes back to that thing, you know, can I make my footprint on the planet be half as bad as it is now? Sure, everybody couldn't do that. Um, <laughs> and, and so then it's like, okay, by getting there, then what have I done? Now, right now, there's this thing about fracking, and it's gotten way out of hand. It is awful. Mm-hmm. And so then they're like, oh, I'm going to go and shake my fist at them. How'd that go? How'd that go? I mean, there's, there's not just one guy out there shaking his fist. I mean, there's been thousands of people out there shaking their fists. How's that working out? Anything? Well, the, uh, they're not really making any advances, but they are raising awareness. a lot more awareness, which is okay. one positive. Uh, one thing I was going to say is it sh- I shudder to think if everyone, every Everywhere suddenly stopped giving money to Monsanto or BP or whatever, I'm pretty doggone sure they would weasel their way to get a bunch of government money to say, oh, our industry is suffering. We need to be bailed out. And it would happen, you know? So it really, like, part of not giving them your dollars or not feeding the monsters, it's like... Can you really say, like, stop paying your taxes? You know, it's like, yeah, crazy. I, that's but that is, that's a book that's further this down book the that road. we're reading. I mean, you think about it. Is it not plausible that you could get into a scenario where the total amount of money that you need to get by each month is well under 500 bucks? In which case, you're earning so little money or you've got so much, so little money that you need to have that if you were to earn something on the order of, like, $6,000 a year, that would be perhaps gobs, plenty. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. And which, and if that is the case, then doesn't that mean that you're not paying any taxes, at least federal taxes? Oh yeah, at that level, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book kind of spells it out. Yeah. So no, I mean, I think I mean, this is 
the things that we're talking about right now are huge issues. They're enormous and very multifaceted. And when it comes to like getting the fracking to stop, I don't think it's going to be just one thing. But I do think the biggest thing is to stop fucking buying the shit. I agree. And and it's like you can. There's alternatives. There are there are alternatives to heating your house. There's alternatives to heating your hot water. There's alternatives for uh, cooking. There's alternatives for everything that fracking um, supports. So it's kind of like um, you know play you know play down the sword. Now granted, they might go and do something in Boulder when people stop buying gas. It's like oh guess what? We're going to generate your electricity with natural gas. And and so it's like but you know what? A lot of the stuff that I talk about is how do you cut your electricity use by a factor of ten? So it's kind of like, you know, you're going to eventually get to the point where it's like clean energy is plenty, and it's plenty cheap. Or, you you know what, and if you don't like what they're doing over there, there are things you can do for yourself so you're not even on the grid anymore. Although getting off of the grid is like, I, I kind of feel like that's not always the slam dunk solution if you're trying to make things cleaner and stuff. Um. I just really don't trust a lot of the structures in society. And, like, say with the the insurance thing, you know, it's like they just basically said, all right, everyone's got to buy insurance. I feel like I have such a negative view of the whole system that we live in that if we all swore off fossil fuels, they would pass a law to force everyone to buy fossil fuels. I I, uh, I think it's possible. It's almost like the CFL thing, you know. We need to... Right. It's, it's such a scam. Like, not feeding the, the monster, I think we need to go beyond not feeding the monster, but to actively working to kill the monster. I think that there are people that are trying to actively kill the monster. The unfortunate part is that they're also trying to kill a bunch of red herrings. And, you know, I wish I could see a little bit more focus in that space, but that's that's not my area of stuff. I, I, I had to swear off getting angry at bad guys a long time ago because it's like I just, it, it, it will consume your life. And and so personally, myself, I'm, I'm focusing my stuff on, because we want to start talking about political stuff, that, that'll be um, a 47-hour long podcast, and it'll only scratch the surface. So um, uh, uh, coming back to this book, I you know I do think that permaculture. When, when when you sit down and you really start to think about every single world problem you can think of, and every single political issue, and every single, I think the solution every single time ends up being homesteading and permaculture. I mean every you know, and, and I I mean I don't want to do it right now, but maybe that'd be a podcast. It's like okay, nail me whatever you got. You know, you want to talk about the drug problems. You want to talk about, you know, um, um, assisted suicide. You want to talk about, you know, we could list off every single, abortion. We could we could talk about any political thing. Anything that people are just screaming at each other about and angry at each other about. And it's like, I, I, I'll, I'll take you down a path where I believe that the solution is permaculture and homesteading. They all end up at permaculture and homesteading. Everyone. And so, I tend to agree with you on that. that mm-hmm. If we were to implement, the, if we were to implement all this that we focus on so much, permaculture, the world would be a wonderful place if we could get everybody on board. Right. 
Yeah, returning, right, returning to nature, being close to the things that we create. All, so, then, all those things. so then, rather than spending um, infinite energy and anger and heartache on fight, fight, fight the bad guys, then on, it's like instead you can spend like a hundred thousand times less effort on simply building good things, and then you end up with permaculture and homesteading. And, and whereas before, you put unlimited effort into it and you made really no difference whatsoever, then, you know, now you're putting in hardly any effort at all and you have made an enormous difference. So that is why I focus on building good things rather than being angry at bad guys. So, you know, so let's, let's set all this political shit aside for a moment, if that's all right with you. If you feel, you feel oh, done, you feel good, you got it out. Oh, yeah, I feel, I feel like I've made numerous points okay. that I'm satisfied with. All right. So um, focusing for a moment on, on you know, the, the, the book. I mean, granted, I'm tempted to sit here and, like, to start jumping into every political thing ever exposed and, like, you know, let's, let's beat the shit out of it and kick it in the nuts. But um, I thought that it was great that it, um, at one point through this section we got to something where it's like I'm, I'm looking at it it's like he's, he's like, saying very permaculture-esque stuff. And, and, then, and then he says, look at the edges. They are where everything happens. Learn to recognize, and so he's telling us that we have to go and learn something now. <clears throat> learn to recognize and understand the edges and boundaries of natural systems and how to take advantage of them. Then he's got a sidebar called Life on the Edge. Much of the renewed awareness of the importance of edge conditions in agriculture and nature and their inherent complexity and delicacy can be credited to the permaculture movement. Yes, that's us. We, we got a cameo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting to note that permaculture ideas have a lot in common with traditional East Asian sustainable farming methods, including Japan and that a natural farming movement in Japan that anticipated many of the findings of permaculture began as early as the 1930s. All of which is to say that permaculture has found a natural home in Japan and the network of practitioners and advisors have been steadily expanding over the last few decades. Practitioners in other parts of the world are eager to learn from the Japanese experience and an exposure to the experiences of natural farmers on other continents gives like-minded Japanese an important sense of context. Now, I'm, I was surprised, I was expecting, as I was reading that, to encounter a mention of Masanobu Fukuoka. But, you know, here's, here's the guy in Japan who's kind of like one of the big permaculture gods, even though he never called his own stuff permaculture. But, yeah, nothing. Zip. Um, that was unfortunate. We still got half the book to go. Yeah, maybe maybe he'll show up. <laughs> um, then, then it goes into, okay, here's the thing about comfort. And, uh, okay, so he says, rethink. So he's commanding us. Rethink the meaning of comfort. Should we stop trying to be so comfortable all the time? 
uh, though strong arguments are made to the contrary, with some insisting that lifestyle and value change is not necessary and that technical solutions will allow us to solve our environmental problems without any inconvenience. In fact, we probably should re-examine our notions of comfort and convenience first. I think that this little section is a pile of horseshit. Because you can still be comfortable yeah. by living like the first few sections that we read in this book. Or, you know, or find things that are a hybrid between what we know today and, and what we what, find in this book. Right. And think of that. Uh, I th- I've right at the beginning of this, I wrote one of my favorite pet phrases, which is success equals results minus expectations. And it seems like what he's saying is that you need to lower your expectations. Right. It's like that uh, Saturday Night Live bit where it's uh, like a dating service called Lowered Expectations. Yeah. (laughs) What we're talking about is raising your results in in addition to not necessarily lowering your expectations. But there's a lot. Yeah, it it kind of struck me as funny, this section. I, I think that there is a path in here, in the world of permaculture, that I think very few people actually see. And I I would like to, I, you know, I think we need to get more eyes on this, more brains on this. And that is that I think that we can create a more luxuriant life down this road. I think I think that there are, are ways to be able to do things that are even more convenient and luxuriant than what um, is what exists now. Not only because we've reduced toxicity, so you spend less time hanging out in the hospital room with people pumping you full of chemicals telling you that it's good for you, but um, also for uh, um, just being able to eat better foods. Like the food, that's an excellent example. The food tastes better. I mean, is that not a form of luxury? Food that tastes better? Having a house that's warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer? And warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer without having to fuck with it or having to pay for it. Isn't it more luxuriant Mm -hmm. to, like, not have any kind of electric bill um, and to not have to build a fire? Isn't that more luxuriant? Um, And it's like... don't you feel more satisfied also with yourself? Is it it more luxuriant to not have a day job? How about that one? Would that be luxuriant? Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, I got to say, though, in this one section... They did. He did use my favorite word of this entire bit, which is pedestrianization. Talking about the pedestrianization and bikeability of our communities. I love I love words like that. See, when people ask me what what faith I am or what religion I am, I say, Oh, I'm a devout pedestrian. No, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll, I, I've written that in. I'm like, when you got forms, and I kind of feel like I want to. I want a box that says none of your fucking business, but that's not there. So there's other. As so I always write that in there. It's like I'm not sure what they do with 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 that. Hopefully they don't confuse it with pederasty. Oh, I don't even know what that is. What is pederasty? You don't want to know. Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. Is it anything like the flying spaghetti monster? <laughs> no, it's like that photo of the guy who stepped on the CFL. Ooh. Ooh. 
Yeah, don't don't ever look at that picture. You yeah. looked at the picture? Did you look at the picture, Rory? No. Don't ever look at that picture. <laughs> if somebody sends you an email like, here's a picture of a guy's foot that stepped on a CFL, don't open it. Yes. Don't look. And now I realize that 90% of the people that are listening to this are going to go look now. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it was bad. It was real bad. Pretty, yeah, see, and you can't unsee it. It was terrible. So anyway, yeah. Would you be a happier person having never seen that picture? I don't know. That sort of stuff really doesn't bother me that bad. It bothers me. There's, there's I'd be a happier more, person if I'd never seen that picture. There's far more innocuous imagery that, like, disturbs me far greater. Like, half the billboards around town are honestly far more frightening than a guy who's got his foot rotten off. So here's so I'm back to the comfortable thing. I, I want to say, like one of the things that I talk about in a lot of my presentations when I'm traveling around and talking in front of groups and whatnot is is that a lot of people say, oh, if I do the Hugo culture thing, it's going to look crappy. It's going to it's going to look like I need to go pull the weeds. And and it's like you know that problem is not nature. That problem is you. Because I think you can do a hugel culture in such a way that it looks beautiful when all these varieties of plants move in. And on top of that, you're going to be planting your own stuff. You're going to try and set the pace before the species you didn't plant show up. And so I think that you can have something that is rich in life that looks amazing and wonderful. Yes, you can also have something rich in life that looks like hell. So it's like, I think that the first step is is to imagine polyculture in a way where you do not do anything with it and it is amazingly beautiful. Something where you don't pull weeds, you don't chop weeds, you don't smother weeds, you're not, mus- you're not messing with the weeds at all, just that what's growing there is indeed a beautiful thing and I think that you can pull it off. I think there are ways that can pull- you can pull it off. But if you're going you're going to say, oh, it's going to look like hell unless I go and pull everything and plant it in straight rows, then, yeah, it's going to be a, a lot of work and it's, not going, it's never going to look good. So I, I think the comfortable thing is kind of like that. Imagine a path where you do have, without sacrificing any comfort or any convenience, where, where you can be better, a, a, a life path that's better than where you are now. And I think it's a big part of what we're talking about and a big part of what this book is because what's being talked about in this book is like that whole thing where, um, where I'm dividing the land up into four different chunks, and each chunk is ten times better than the next chunk. And the last chunk, the best chunk, is a lot like what's in this book. And so this kind of gives you a, 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 some ideas for some possible destination stuff. So, I mean, have you, ever, have you ever had a kitchen sink that was made out of wood? And yet, why would you not? I mean, it, I suppose it's possible it could be difficult to clean, but we've never really tried it. I mean, don't in this particular design, there's no way to stop it up. You're not trying to stop it up. That's not that's not the issue. That's not the mission. And so then there's like it's just a different way of going about this kind of thing. And so now that it becomes plausible, that it's like. Is it not worth trying? And then in which case, you know, when you're out living in the woods, you're kind of thinking like, oh, I need a kitchen sink. And then it's kind of like, well, how are you going to have a kitchen sink, um, you know, if you, if you don't go into town and buy one? 
And so now there's an option. I mean, I've seen people who had sinks where they literally carved them out of an enormous log. Or they cut a barrel in half or something. Right, right. And, and But, you know, cutting a barrel in half, I've never seen a barrel cut in half that was like, ooh, what a beautiful aesthetic. And you know, I kind of think... Big wine barrel. You see it a lot with wine and whiskey casks. Oh, okay. People do that yeah. quite wooden a bit. Wooden barrel. Yeah, wooden barrel, not a not a 55-gallon oil drum. That's what I was thinking. No, wooden wooden cask. Okay, all right. You see those in fancy upscale, you know, Dwell magazine and that kind of stuff. All right, all right. Sweet aesthetic. Okay. But okay. I really like the one they have presented here that's flat and slightly tilted back to the back corner so that the water drains off the back. I agree with you that your husk idea, the zone four of your... The fourth chunk. The fourth chunk. This book makes that vision seem like a reality. It brings it easily within the realm of possibility. So when I talk about the fourth chunk in a in previous podcasts, then it's like the forums just caught on fire. Everybody had a million questions about how are you going to do this? How would you do that? How would you do the thing? And because uh, we're saying there's no plastic allowed and there's no um, plumbing allowed and there's none and all of these different challenges. No fire, right? And no fire, but you know, which is not something that's covered in this book. But the the key is that suddenly uh, there's this, this thing has answers for a lot of that, and it spells a lot of it out. All right, my next note is on page 104. Do you guys have something before 104? It mentions embodied energy, um, taking that into account with the materials that you use. And if you're curious, there are a number of embodied energy calculators online. And there are indexes and tables of things that show the amount of energy that goes into a product like, say, a soda can. So that, that's good. Also, um, using dirt, I would have loved it if they had a small recipe for a dirt floor. I think dirt floors are sweet. I have no idea how to build one. I would you know, love to learn. I've, I've heard some extremely complicated recipes. And then uh, I have a podcast where I visited with Glenn Kangeser. Kongeser. Glenn Kongeser. Uh, and he had um, this area out behind his house that went up a, up to another area, to the shop. And it was enclosed as kind of like a, a greenhouse-like thing. But um, the steps that went up there, he said, those were just the dirt that was already there on the ground. And so I shaped the steps. And then I just poured on linseed oil and worked it in. And that was like 12 years ago. And it's like they they looked like they were I don't know hand sculpted stairs. I and and I thought wow. And he's like this is this is the main path he uses to go up to his shop every day, several times a day. And there are, another, there are a number of other drying oils too, in addition to linseed tongue oil. Yeah, is made from the tongue tree. Yeah, natural product. That's great. That's cool. All I'm thinking is is that it's like just putting some linseed oil on dirt and you end up with something that looked rather magnificent. And and I, I mean, when it comes to dirt floor stuff, like um, a cob floor, you know, earthen floors, earthen floors, uh, I've seen a bunch of recipes and it is like the level of complexity is like, wow, that's going to take a 
month to do the floor. They just sound like so much work. And then we got Glenn, and, and he's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I put some linseed oil on it, and we're all good. There you go. And it's like, really? That, that's it? It looks it looks awesome. So, um, yeah. What do you got next? All right. Next, mine is on the 104, a quote from William McDonough. Oh, yeah, I got that one, too. <laughs> well, pollution is a symbol of design failure. Yeah, that's, that is amazing. That is excellent. And this is part of a section he says, aim for zero waste materials, um, which I also think just the idea of aim for zero waste materials, that, that's kind of a cool thing. And I think when we're building with wood or we're build, building with straw or we're building with, um, well, bricks that we've built from our own property or rock or you know, stone or uh, things of this nature, then, then we're using zero waste materials. And that seems like a big part of all of this. Stuff that we didn't have to import onto the land. That's zero waste. And has, has um, you know, zero to no, uh, little to no pollution. So what else we got? I like to make an exception for importing things to your land if you bring it with your own human power. Which you and Rory do. Yes, and Rory got a bike trailer today. <laughs> Way to go, Rory. Very exciting. Did, did you get something that was commercial or was it handmade? It was gifted. It's made out of straw. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's aluminum. But I, I, I moved to Missoula because I was a, a powerful bicycle advocate. I refused to own a car when I was a much younger man. And um, when I arrived, I had my bicycle, and uh, um, I bought uh, a trailer from somebody that they had handmade. And I learned that um, handmade trailers uh, um, can have, I mean, there's some big design things that you just don't normally think of. But this thing, this thing was scary. Uh, it, it looked like a little chariot behind my bike. That would make me the horse on this chariot. And and um, it's like it would start to go back and forth, and it would flip over. Oh, yeah. Dumping all my crap out. I built it, one of those. It would be one of the shopping cart. I actually, <laughs> it was awesome. I, I brought the shopping cart home just by hitching it up directly behind my bike as is. that. And wheeled it all the way home on those tiny little wheels, pulled it behind my bike. That was way better than the cart that I tried to make from the shopping cart. <laughs> it actually wasn't that bad. I mean, you hook it up, it, the little wheels are noisy, and they bounce around, and they're really inefficient, but not that bad. If you're in a city in some place with a lot of smooth pavement, just get a shopping cart, chain it up behind your bike with a somewhat rigid rod, and you might do okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to... Anyway. People don't get a shopping cart because that shopping cart probably belongs to a grocery store or something. Oh, no, you can get busted ones. They, I mean, shopping carts get damaged a lot, and a lot of supermarkets in the back will have some in their warehouse that are all fucked up, and you can get them for $10 or whatever. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. All right. It's good to know. I'll support that. At Home Resource, we get a lot of shopping carts from, like, Home Depot and Osco Drug. and PetSmart. Yeah, PetSmart. I mean, they second after a while, they get all beat up. 
so they give them away or sell them for cheap. Well, later I got, you know, one of those little uh, yellow uh, uh, bike trailers, which just worked so much better. Children in? Yeah. Yeah, and I did that. I put my I stored children in there temporarily <laughs> when I wasn't hauling other stuff around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You store your children while you're transporting them around. Around here, most of the time you see dogs riding in those things. <laughs> <laughs> I marked off a chunk on page 106. Back to thatch, and I thought I thought that this little sidebar that they have about back to thatch kind of reveals some stuff about thatch that I don't think was mentioned before. While the use of thatch began to decline in urban areas in Japan during the Edo period, it remained the most common material for rural roofs until about a century ago. But its flammable properties and the availability of inexpensive alternatives like corrugated iron caused thatch roofs to almost disappear during the 20th century. And the slowly evolved and refined craft techniques involved in thatching faded along with them. This is why it is heartening to observe an upsurge of interest in traditional thatching and a gradual re-dissemination of knowledge and skill. The designation of the village of Shirakawago in Gifu Prefecture with its dozens of thatched roof farmhouses as a UN World Heritage Site in 1996 gave thatching in Japan a big boost. Expert thatchers were suddenly in demand, and as house after house was rethatched, a new generation of expert craftsmen was born. It is still an expensive way to roof. Sufficient supplies of pompous grass or other appropriate material are a bit hard to come by, and the fire concerns that caused it to disappear in the first place remain. But the craft has undoubtedly experienced a rebirth. I've spent some time baling my own straw bales, and I've, through that, realized that definitely the hardest, most energy-intensive part is getting the straw out of the field. And if you have a great, easy means of doing that, I think a person could thatch their own roof without this, like, huge community effort that's described in this book. I've thought about, it sounds sacrilegious to say, but hiring one of those uh, professional lawnmower companies with their giant mower to go out and mow down this this grass meadow that's just all grass and just leave it and say, all right, you guys, I'll do, take care of the rest and, you know, bundle it up and bale it up. But I could totally see doing it, as, as using it for thatch, say. I don't think it would work for thatch because their mowers are going to break it down like little pieces. Like No, no, I mean like a, with a sickle bar, not with a okay. mower blade. Okay, like a scythe or something. Those ones that they use to trim the sides of the road, it's like a, a right. an industrial swather without the collection equipment attached. Right, just drops it right yep, there. Yeah, just drops yeah. it. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, if you got a scythe, if you got a number of people out with scythes, they could take care of some grass pretty quick. You could, you could have a scythe workshop and suddenly have all that you need. Yeah. I went to a... Uh, 
uh, I've, you go to a lot of home and ranch places and ask them where the signs are, and they're like, what's that? <laughs> okay, so we got some work to do to get people to convince them to try on the sides again. And what's even more fun is to ask if they have a snaz. <laughs> I'm looking for a snap for my side. And uh, what aisle would that be in? Yeah, so, uh, okay. Yeah, you're right. They're going to be a little confused. The last chunk I got marked off is another sidebar called Green Curtains. And and we've got a thread out of Permies, which I think um, it's, it's turned into a massive thread, and it's really important. It's like how to really save energy in the summer. And um, it started because I was on Reddit, and somebody said, 10 tips on how to save energy this summer. And I went and I looked at it, and they were all super lame. Um, it was it was pathetic and miserable, and I don't think any of them would actually save anybody any money. Um, it, and so, was green curtains one of them? No, no. But green curtains is one that's mentioned in our thread at Permies. Yeah. And so, I mean, a big one is is that there's places where it gets really hot. They have air conditioning. Yeah. So a lot of our stuff is about at Permies. It's about drying your clothes outside is one. Um, another one is about you know how to keep the house cool and basically you want layers of cool you want not just not just one curtain but several layers you want light to get in but you want the heat to stay outside so um, a lot of discussion about how you go about doing that and and one of the best things in the world to do is that is to simply plant trees and it's going to be years until you get the, the payback from that but until the trees grow in because a good tree in your backyard cool your house by 10 or 20 degrees. I mean, it makes an enormous difference. But but then just having different layers of, of shading coming to your house, having layers of coolitude. All right. And then, of course, getting some air to move through at the same time. So you want to shade but not block airflow. Green curtains from, the ch- from uh, page 109. During summer months, Japanese often used lightweight removable trellises covered with climbing vines to help shade the interiors of their homes. We might call them green curtains. And they were often sources of food, beans and squash, or color morning glories as well as shade. Recently, the green curtain idea has found renewed acceptance and has been adapted for use on institutional buildings. One corporation has added them to five factories using morning glories and edible bitter gourd plants to make living shade curtains over 140 meters in length. They found the added shade greatly reduced the need for air conditioning in the factories, particularly in the morning. Other groups have begun similar projects to add green curtains to schools and government buildings across the country and have established curriculum guidelines that use the creation and upkeep of the curtains to teach environmental science to elementary and junior high school students. The idea is excellent, inexpensive, easily approachable, and rooted in tradition. And we can expect to see it spread soon to other sectors of society as well. There's a really great book about living willow sculpture. 
in which people make verandas and tunnels and playhouses all out of willow cuttings. They lay out a base on the ground and get a pattern laid out, plant willows, and as they grow, they weave them together. Pretty soon they've built a, a bower, and it's awesome. I've seen people build benches out of living willow. Um, I've heard of a lot of people building bridges out of living willow, but I have not seen one in person yet. Although I've been to the locations like, oh yeah, last year the teenagers came and wiped out the living willow bridge. They were just fucking with it and it fell apart. Yeah, there's pictures of they do that in South America a lot with those vines that grow hundreds of years old and get very woody. Woody. So I haven't, I haven't. So in South America, I, I I know about ones that they've made out of vines, but are they living? I think so. Okay. I know that in India, we've got a huge thread out at Permis where in India they've um, built them from the roots of a certain kind of a tree. So then the roots extend all the way across to the other side of the creek and back. And it's and like they've they tend to them. And so basically, there's like a family that will tend these massive bridges, and they're living bridges. And then people pay like you know a penny to cross the bridge, and that's kind of how the family earns their living. Is from maintaining this amazing bridge. It's a toll bridge. <laughs> That's great. So living well, there's a, we've got an image out at Permis where um, it's apparently the largest living willow structure in the world, and it's just an art piece that's probably like 100 feet tall, um, which I think is pretty awesome. But there's, uh, there's quite a few uh, different kinds of things you can do with, with living willow structures. Um, it, one of the points right before this is slip culture is a pattern solution, and they mean throwing, growing trees from cuttings or from slips. And it's interesting that you can make a rooting hormone, basically, out of lots of little pieces of willow cut up and soaked in water, and the willow contains a rooting hormone in it. That's why it's so easy to transplant willows, but it works for other plants. You can dip them in the solution and then they'll start to root. I don't know if it works for conifers, but it'd be a good thing to know. Yeah, I, I prefer to start trees from seed myself. But yeah. All right, we got anything else for this chunk of the book? Nope. I don't. I don't necessarily view the um, commands as being so uh, authoritarian. I, I. I think it's always good to encourage people to do stuff rather than let them decide on their own. You like give them the verb that they could take action with. It's not so much as like commanding someone to do something, but telling someone that you can do this. I, I just kind of felt like the, the writing style in this part of the book just had a very different feel. And I mean, like I thought that the writing style before was really delicious, and suddenly we're getting into this stuff that I thought was like, I, it's not sitting well with me. Even if I agree with what he says, I kind of feel like, you know, I, stop telling me what to do. Um, and I, I, I like, whereas before it was like information was being presented in a really nice format. Now it's like, no, these generalizations are being made and I'm being told how to live my life. 
Anyway, that's just, that was just my feeling. My, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm a, I write things, and people seem to like it, but I don't. I would not call my. I have a hard time calling myself a writer because it's like I don't know the difference. I don't know how to. I don't know how to describe a better writing style for this guy. He he wanted to say this thing as more of his philosophies, and as a, more direct for modern times, as opposed to like talking about what things were like in the Edo period. Um, and and so I don't know how to say he should have done the so and so technique. It yeah. might have come off better if he moved this section to the end of the book. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. yeah. I agree. All right. Yeah. Anything else? If you, like this sort of if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about the Edo period, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.